Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 355th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by ICD University, inviting you to attend a must-see webcast on cardiovascular surgery. And joining me this morning is my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporate. and good morning, Erica. Hey, we got a lot of news to report this morning. We sure do. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everybody. Our lead story this morning is about ICD-11. Of course, it's on the horizon, so now is a good time to start planning, I would imagine. That's right. Julie Dooling with AHEMA will be reporting on research that AHEMA is conducting to determine how to improve coding productivity, accuracy, and quality. Indeed. Looking forward to hearing from Julie Dooling as well. I'm so glad the polar vortex is gone for the time being, but I'm looking forward to hearing Lori Johnson report on codes related to frigid conditions. She'll be reporting an ICD-10-CM injury and external cause codes. And speaking of codes, you're going to be reporting on a very serious subject, the coding for cardiac arrest. Yes, I'm also going to be conducting a poll on that topic during my segment. And returning to Talk 10 Tuesday is Stanley Nockamson. Stan's going to be reporting on the latest regulations to come out of Washington. And there are a couple of very important ones coming up, despite the cold spell that's gripped the country. We have much news to report during today's Talk 10 Tuesday. And we begin with ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent, Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to a live webcast on ENM coding, determining the levels of service. It's tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To save $25, use the coupon code TUESDAY. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is Tim Powell. Today we're going to talk about what could be uh, seen as a boring subject, but this time it really isn't. There's new accounting rules regarding revenue recognition that will dramatically impact financial statements of healthcare providers starting this year. Publicly traded companies were required to start using these rules last year. These new accounting rules provide for a five-step process in determining how to recognize revenue from customers. One is identify the contract for the customer. Two is identify the performance obligation in the contract. Three is determine the transaction price, always tricky in healthcare. Four is allocate the transaction price to the preference performance obligation in the contract. And finally is to recognize revenue when the entity satisfies the performance obligation. Now, underneath this are five rules uh, in, order to, in order to recognize revenue. And first is you have to have an approval and commitment of the parties. You have to have an identification as to the right, so as to the right of the parties to have the uh, uh, revenue. You have to have an identification of payment terms. The contract must have commercial substance, and it has to be probable that the entity will collect from customers. Now, in terms of healthcare, we have some specific issues here. Is first, who is the contract with? Is it with the patient or is it with the insurer? Um, underneath that, we have an issue with charity care. If there is no con- if there is no contract in order to have revenue, is there any revenue? So the argument is that charity care will no longer show as revenue on, on financial statements. Similarly, for self-pay patients, that there was never an agreement for the patient to pay, and that's kind of tricky to figure out, that also should not be recognized as revenue. Um, and, and additional complications are Medicaid pending and SDI pending where you uh, are not aware of 
uh, where you are not sure of who the actual payer is. And as a final complication are government shutdowns when you can't validate or do your normal enrollment processes. Um, it's particular of concern uh, to CCRCs or continuing care retirement communities that get a large uh, chunk of their funding up front in order to provide care for a long-term basis. And finally, uh, is the recognition of uncompensated care on the worksheet S10 of hospital uh, cost reports in terms of how they're reimbursed for disproportionate share. As a result of the new rules, healthcare gross revenues will go down and when charity allowances and revenue for accounts which the provider had no reason to expect payment are removed. And how do we know that the patient had no intent to ever pay? Well, that's going to be the tricky part. Bad debt expenses will go down when the providers can only include in bad debt accounts for which they had an agreement with the patient to pay. That's really tricky as well. For acute care hospitals, it will make it harder to reconcile and report uncompensated care costs required for the payment of disproportionate share hospital payments when charity and most bad debt self-pay revenue is excluded from the financial statements. It will almost make it impossible to compare certain aspects of financial data with prior periods to the new rule. CMS has never weighted in on how providers report these issues on their cost reports. Do they file the new accounting rules or assume that CMS wants them to report as if, as if the rules never happened? Some acute care providers may actually see an increase in Medicare outlier payments when their operating ratios and capital cost to charge ratios increase when charity charges and certain self-pay revenues removed from total revenue. In conclusion, providers should get their revenue cycle leaders, their reimbursement directors, and the people tasked with financial reporting in the same room and on the same page. Providers should also get an understanding from their financial auditors on how the new rules should be applied and how they will impact financial reporting. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's February the 5th, 2019. We're hours away from the State of the Union address tonight. But right now, you're listening to the 355th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Here's an important announcement from ICD University. Are you uncertain when coding cardiac and vascular bypass procedures? If you've looked at a cardiovascular procedure report and wondered how many codes you need, we have a program for you. This ICD-10 PCS webcast goes further, supplementing pertinent anatomy with illustrated explanations of various procedures, like coronary artery bypass. What makes this webcast different is it focuses heavily on illustrating the procedures and condensing official coding guidelines and coding clinic advice into practical and concise packages that help simplify the coding process. To register for this special webcast on cardiovascular coding, just click on the handout tab in today's program. And to save $25, enter the coupon code TUESDAY. Now's the time for Reg Watch featuring healthcare industry IT authorities. Stanley Knox, good morning, Stanley. Stanley looks like got two very interesting regulations coming out of Washington today. What, what should we know? Good morning, Chuck, and to our panel and audience. Always a pleasure to be here. Uh, there are uh, two regs that were uh, published the last week that I think reflect uh, a couple of this administration's priorities. The first one is from the Veterans Administration, a place that I don't usually talk about, but they have published proposed rules that expand the ability of veterans to seek care outside of the regular uh, VA system. 
This proposal allows a veteran to use private care if they had to wait more than 20 days or to drive more than 30 miles for a VA appointment. Under current rules, uh, the standards are more than a 30-day wait or more than 40 miles. The, for specialty care, the eligibility threshold will be increased to 60 minutes of drive time or a 28-day wait for an appointment. Uh, so this gives veterans more of an opportunity to seek care closer to their home or more quickly if the VA facilities cannot accommodate them. These changes also could increase the number of veterans that are eligible for private care from about uh, 560,000 today to as many as 2.1 million, according to the VA. These veterans would also be allowed to go to an urgent care facility outside of the VA system. The network of these facilities is being constructed. Uh, there will be a small copay for veterans, but they will be allowed to go to uh, local urgent care centers that uh, many of us uh, have frequented uh, these days. Now, these rules are an effort to implement the VA Mission Act that was passed uh, by Congress and signed by the President in June of 2018. It was a bipartisan effort, uh, again, to expand the ability of our veterans to seek care when they can't get it quickly or close in the VA system. One Again, this was one of the uh, priorities of the administration. Another rule that was published uh, by CMS is to revise the HIPAA standards for retail pharmacy transactions, that is, transactions between pharmacies and, and PBMs or payers of uh, for drugs. Now, this proposes to modify the requirements for the use of the telecommunication standards that were published by the National Council for Prescription Drug Programs. HIPAA-covered entities will be required to use the quantity prescribed field for retail pharmacy transactions for Schedule II drugs. Those drugs are defined in part by the Controlled Substances Act as those with a high potential for abuse, with use potentially leading to severe psychological or physical dependence. The act prohibits the refilling of Schedule II drugs. However, in some cases, partial fills are permissible. So this change to the standard enables covered entities using the, the transaction to distinguish whether a prescription is a partial fill, uh, which would be perhaps permitted, or, or a complete refill. And this CMS believes this will help fight the opioid uh, epidemic. It's an interesting change because the proposal not, does not modify the entire version. It just requires covered entities to treat a field uh, in, in the current standards differently than what the current implementation specification requires. So a small change, but this has taken CMS um, quite a long time to, uh, to get published. And again, it's a proposed rule. It will not go into effect until a final rule is published with an implementation date. So even a small change to the standards does take uh, a lot of time and effort by CMS, even if it is uh, something that addresses something as horrible as the opioid epidemic. Dr. Reamer, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Stanley, thank you very much for the news coming out of Washington. And speaking of Washington, of course, tonight the president delivers a State of the Union message.
Returning this morning with our Talk Day Tuesday coding report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. So, codes for the cold. Sounds pretty good. Thanks, Chuck. Good morning. And good morning, Erica. The weather here in western Pennsylvania has turned warmer, just as the groundhog, Punxsutawney Phil, predicted. Yesterday, we had temperatures as high as the mid-60s, which was inconceivable as last week our temperature was minus 27 with the wind chill factor. There are a few conditions that would be precipitated by those temperatures. I want to review those conditions and the associated coating. Frostbite is an injury to the body tissues when exposed to extreme cold, which typically affects your appendages. This injury can result in gangrene. First degree is a term of frostnip. Second degree is superficial frostbite. And third degree is advanced stage, which has tissue necrosis. Um, These conditions are coded in categories T33, which is the superficial frostbite, and T34, which is um, the frostbite with tissue necrosis. Just an alert for our clinical documentation integrities professionals, Um, from their perspective, they need to be looking that the documentation has included the body part and laterality so that it can be documented um, thoroughly. The other part of that is we want to include whether there is tissue necrosis or not. And also, the type of visit that the patient's having will be identified through the seventh character of A, D, or S. A is when the patient is receiving active treatment. D is for subsequent care or aftercare. And S is for when the patient may have a sequela from that injury. Another injury, which I have to say I've rarely seen documented, is chilblains which is a painful inflammation of small blood vessels in skin with repeated exposure to cold, but not freezing air. It is coated with T69.1XX with a seventh character of A, D, or S. And again, those seventh characters are the same as I had spoken about earlier. Snow blindness is another injury, which is also known as photokeratitis. It's a painful temporary loss of vision secondary to overexposure to the sun's ultraviolet rays. Think of it as a sunburned cornea. And this condition is coded as H16.13 with the sixth character of 1, 2, 3, or 9, which would indicate the laterality. Then let's move to hypothermia. Hypothermia is is when the body temperature is dangerously low, or think of it as below 95 degrees Fahrenheit. This is coded as T68, and then it's point XXX, triple X, and then with a sixth character of A, D, or S. And then, of course, for those states that need to report or are required to report external cause codes for all injuries like Pennsylvania, we have external cause codes of exposure to excessive cold from a natural origin, which is X31.XXX, and then a seventh character of A, D, or S, and the blizzard, 
not a Dairy Queen blizzard, but a snow blizzard, or as the coding book also refers as an ice blizzard, could be X37.2 XX, and then with the seventh character of A, D, or S. So that just about covers it. Erica, I'll throw that snowball back to you. <laughs> Thanks, Lori. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And Lori, thank you very, very much for a great story this morning. Also, you can read her reporting on ICD-10 Codes for the Gold in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Our lead story this morning is about preparations and planning underway for ICD-11. It's on the horizon. Here now to report on the research that Ahim is doing, also to tell us about the results of a recent coding productivity story, is Julie Dooley. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. AHIMA has been involved in the development of ICD-11 through participation in World Health Organization activities, and we've provided members with a high-level overview of what ICD-11 looks like and how it differs from ICD-10-CM. It's still much too early to do any more preparation than this. ICD-11 has not been presented yet to the World Health Assembly for approval. That's expected to occur later this year, May, May, in May of this year. And ICD-11 is not scheduled to go into effect until 2022, which means 2022 is the earliest any country can implement ICD-11. When the time comes, AHIMA is well-positioned to lead ICD-11 advocacy efforts, support ICD-11 adoption and implementation, and provide education to coding professionals and other stakeholders, especially given recent experience with the adoption and implementation of ICD-10-CM-PCS. Until then, of course, we will continue our support for ICD-10. Last Monday, AHIMA released an ICD-10 coding productivity white paper. As many of you know, coding productivity is an essential part of HIM operations focused on high-quality, safe, and cost-effective healthcare. Knowing that we needed to set the stage for a successful transition from ICD-9 to ICD-10, a coding productivity benchmarking study was conducted in 2007, which at that time showed an average of 20 minutes to code an inpatient record or approximately three records per hour. Today, with a relatively new code set and new demands on the revenue cycle, AHIMA is working to create new coding productivity benchmarks for ICD-10 going forward. To begin with, we're building on previous data already captured in addition to new efforts. The first post-ICD-10 coding productivity study was conducted in early 2016. It examined average inpatient coding times using more than 150,000 medical records from large healthcare facilities. As a result of this study, the authors were able to validate the following for inpatient coding productivity. As expected, the productivity immediately decreased upon changeover. However, over time, immediately after the October 1st, 21st 
um, October 1st, 2015, go live, um, it gradually increased. So it began at 42 minutes per inpatient record or 1.4 records an hour in October. And by the end of February 2016, it had increased to 40 minutes or 1.5 records per hour. The second coding productivity report uh, or study was done in spring of 2016. It found an ongoing increase in coding productivity over time as well. The second study evaluated more than 165,000 inpatient records and findings showed an average inpatient coders required 38.1 minutes per record. In addition, the second study found a positive correlation between the increased case mix index, CMI, and the amount of time to code an inpatient record. As the CMI increased, so did the time needed to code a record, and we certainly know that patients are presenting today with increasingly complex health issues. While more data is needed to evaluate the impact on patient acuity levels, it is highly likely that they were responsible for some level of change in coding productivity in the study. It's important to take these findings as well as the 2007 benchmarking study results into context. Since healthcare has significantly changed and will continue to change over time. The revenue cycle will continue to be a major focus for healthcare organizations as we move closer to quality and value-based care. As more healthcare organizations implement computer-assisted coding technology, there will be some degree of impact on coding productivity, and coders will need to comprehend the shift towards value-based care to maintain their productivity. AHIMA is taking this opportunity to review professional development, certification offerings, and coder compensation benchmarking models to meet future needs of our members and the industry. And as I alluded to earlier, AHIMA is currently planning a comprehensive follow-up study to be released, so look to AHIMA for new coding productivity results later this year. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Julie. I'll be looking forward to seeing what the study shows. I thought that that data was very interesting. That was Julie Dooling. Julie is AHIMA's Director of Health Information Management Practice Excellence. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Julie, very much for being with us. And now it's time for our, one of our very popular segments here on Talk to Tuesday called Talk Back. And once again, here's Dr. Erica Reamer with a report on a very serious subject, coding for cardiac arrest. Thank you, Chuck. I'm going to do a poll here for a quick minute here. If a patient has a cardiac arrest and is resuscitated pre-hospital and transported to a facility with return of spontaneous circulation, do you code the cardiac arrest? Your choices are yes, no, I don't know, and not applicable. While you guys are voting, I'll just let you know. The reason I actually brought this up was when I was uh, creating slides for my webinar for ICD University, which is going to be on CDI and the ED, uh, which we're going to be doing on March 21st at 1.30 p.m., I decided to address some special scenarios encountered in the emergency department. So one of the first things that came to mind was cardiac arrest. So it isn't as common as you think. But when it does happen, it needs to be documented and coded correctly. So let's take a look and see what the survey said. We stopped the survey, and 199 of you say yes, 
120 of you say no, so it was 52% for yes, and 31% say no, 11% say I don't know, and then 4% says not applicable. This is actually similar to what I found. So one of the situations that we see in the emergency department is a patient who has had an arrest and then bystander or EMS is lucky enough to resuscitate the individual pre-hospital. And upon arrival, the patient is either completely intact, yay for them, or there's some residual deficit or symptomatology. There may or may not be a discernible etiology. So if a patient has a condition in the ED that resolves before they make it upstairs, it is codable, but it's often overlooked if the emergency provider didn't document it well enough. You go and query the hospitalist, and they say, I don't know if the patient had respiratory failure in the ED. I wasn't there, and it's a problem. Have you ever had that situation? Well, it got me to thinking, what do we do when the problem has resolved prior to arrival in the ED? If the condition is a sign or symptom which is resolved by the time the patient presents, and a workup ensues and no definitive diagnosis is found, you have to use a sign or symptom. If a definitive diagnosis is found, the sign or symptom may be considered integral to, so you might drop the sign or symptom and just code the condition. So in the scenario of resuscitation and complete recovery without any signs, symptoms, or a discovered cause, you would have to code cardiac arrest, I-46.9, cause unspecified, because you would have no other choice. I wondered whether you could use the 8674, personal history of sudden cardiac death, but that can't be a principal diagnosis. I also wondered about Z0389, which is encounter for observation for other suspected diseases and conditions ruled out, but that's just not telling the story of the encounter. What if the patient arrives comatose, being bagged? Do you just use the diagnoses which are still present, that is coma and respiratory arrest? Shouldn't you also code the resolved cardiac arrest? It seems pretty important. So this led to me thinking, if the patient arrested with witnessed ventricular tachycardia, which they were shocked out of, you would code the VTAC even if it wasn't present in the ED. So why should cardiac arrest be different? I knew I was overthinking, and I figured the guidelines, coding clinics, or the Internet would have something, had some answer, so I investigated. Nothing in the official guidelines. The coding clinic guidelines for cardiac arrest are from February of 1988, but they were updated in the ICD-10-CM and PCS coding handbook. They talk about patients arriving in the state in a, uh, arriving in the ED in a state of cardiac arrest, but they don't mention pre-hospital resuscitation. I couldn't find it on the internet either. There are lots of questions about whether you code cardiac arrest if the patient is not successfully resuscitated in the hospital. The answer to that is. If you attempt to resuscitate the patient, you should code the cardiac arrest and the procedures like intubation. The cardiac arrest is excluded from being an MCC if the patient expires. If the patient dies and no resuscitation is undertaken, like if the patient is DNR, you do not code cardiac arrest. I-46 codes do not indicate that a patient has died. The fact that the patient died in the hospital is embedded in their discharge status and there is an alternate mechanism to report inpatient death. So I asked some of my trusted coding friends, and I determined I wasn't the only one who was confused. And you can see with the poll that there's a difference of opinion as well. So to get back to the original question, here's my conclusion. I have concluded 
that cardiac arrest should be coded in the case of pre-hospital successfully resuscitated arrest. It is needed to understand the story of the encounter. It's like syncope or resolved altered mental status. It's the reason the patient was brought to the hospital and ends up being admitted. If you determine an etiology, you can select due to underlying cardiac or due to other condition. If you have an etiology, the I-46 code becomes a secondary code and the causative condition is principal. Any injuries sustained in a fall or from resuscitation, any additional deficits like coma or respiratory failure or shock liver should be captured too. If you have ever asked the coding clinic this question and got a personal response, would you shoot us an email? Because we'd love to hear their, their answer, and we would share it with everybody. Thanks very much, Eric. And you can read uh, Erica's reporting in today's ICD-10 Monitor e-news. By the way, we do have a number of questions. We're not going to have time to answer those questions, but we'll make every effort to answer those questions later this week. So that's going to be a wrap for our 355th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. We want to thank you very much for being with us today. We want to thank Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Stanley Doxon, and our special guest, Julie Dooling, and, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. In the meantime, you can listen to all Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And I hope you're going to join me tomorrow for the live webcast on E&M Coding, determining the levels of service. That's tomorrow, Wednesday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. And remember, you can save 25 bucks when you use the coupon code TUESDAY. Until tomorrow, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday at IC10 Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.